Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's late January 2024, and it's cold and raining, and as much as I really want to go play in the woods, the wind has been so fierce this week that any attempts to record outside have proved both miserable for me and pretty darn horrible to listen to. So, what are these sounds pinging and echoing? Well, these are the noises of tuning forks from lots of different pitches, and I've chosen to use them now because pitch, music, even particular individual notes all have profound effects on our mood, how we think, and even how we heal. Ancient peoples knew this. Plato, Aristotle, and Hippocrates, he of the Hippocratic Oath, all wrote about music as a fundamental part of medicine. In the 17th century, in his seminal book, The Anatomy of Melancholy, Richard Burton wrote of music as critical for treating spiritual ailments. Even now, studies at institutions as wide-ranging as Harvard Medical School, the Cambridge University Centre for Music and Science, and the pioneering Anglia Ruskin University are all engaged in exploring how music positively affects the treatment of maladies, including conditions as wide-ranging as cancer, dementia, trauma, chronic pain, and recovery rates from surgery. More than just the body, though, music affects the soul. There's not a single religious tradition where music does not play a part, whether that's in terms of music's intended impact on the living or music's intended impact on the dead. With this thought in mind, gather close around the Three Ravens campfire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens podcast. Sat on a tree Down a down Hey down a down They were as black As they might be With a down One of them Said to his mate 
Where shall we our breakfast take? With a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the Three Ravens podcast. My name's Martin Vaux. I'm a writer, storyteller and English romanticism obsessive. And I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts. Eleanor Conlon. Ahoy there! And let's start in the customary way by thanking our brand new supporter on Patreon, David. All hail David, King of Patreon! Thank you, David, for signing up, and to everyone in our lovely Patreon community. Mm -hmm. We very much hope you enjoyed our Three Ravens Film Club episode for January, released last Thursday, all about Cemetery Man. What a crazy movie. Well worth a watch if you like a zombie head splat. Or Rupert Everett, or existential philosophy. Yes, indeed, indeed. And there's a new Three Ravens newsletter coming out on Thursday, 1st of February, packed with folk customs for the month, zodiac and Celtic tree information, a new magic spell, tarot spread and more. So to access tons of exclusive content and all of our episodes ad-free, if you haven't already, do please sign up to our Patreon for $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast. Also, please keep your entries coming in for our folkloric flash fiction competition. Yes. We're looking for a thousand words of original writing, so type it up, hone it, then send it through to us at threeravenspodcast at gmail.com and we'll read them all, pick our favourites and give them dramatic readings in a special episode after the end of Series 3. Likewise, please keep sending us your local folklore, interesting tidbits about your area, ghosts you've encountered, the troll under your village bridge, whatever it may be. Email it through to threeravenspodcast at gmail.com for inclusion in our next listener episode. Thank you, incidentally, to everyone who's emailed us this week. Yeah. We'll talk more about correspondence at the end of the episode, but we really love hearing how you're doing and your thoughts about the podcast, so keep those messages coming. Most definitely. Now, it's Monday the 29th of January, and alas, alack, allay, it's another of those nothing days. Oh, a nothing day. How tedious. Yep. So, hey, if you're feeling inspired, do something folkloric and interesting today, something that lasts the test of time. And who knows, in a hundred years, we might be celebrating the 29th of January as the day you did that thing. Could be great. <laughs> Although, looking ahead ever so slightly... Pretty big one on Thursday, as it's Imok. Yes, as our Patreon subscribers will know from our recent Imok special, February 1st is the Pagan Festival of Imok, also known as St Brigid's Day, the festival of the Celtic goddess Brigid, also known as Saint Brigid in the Christian tradition. Oh yes, the day marks the start of spring and the Pagan Wheel of the Year, and is marked by the making of the Brigid's Cross to hang over entryways into your home and above windows to guard from bad luck and evil spirits. And there's the sweeping of homes to get all that nasty wind Winter brushed away, and of course, biddy parades. Yes, this is where people would make a little effigy of Bridget, normally out of straw, and parade her through their local community. Sometimes these parades would be ladies only, and the little Bridget or biddy would be walked around the borders of the parish, taken into homes to bless them, and then at the end of the day, everyone would meet up for a party with drinking, dancing, performances, and an all-round jolly shindig to welcome in spring. On Imic Eve, so Wednesday evening, you might want to make a bed for Bridget to come and sleep in before her big day mm. and to leave out a plate of food and something for her to drink just to make sure she feels welcome. For much more detail on the whole affair and a story set at Imok, do check out the Imok special on the Three Ravens Patreon. But without further ado, should we wake the county criers from their vernal hibernation and have them ring us into Derbyshire? Absolutely, those lazy so-and-sos. Come on, you look. You're not badgers. Look lively. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Derbyshire is located in England's East Midlands. It's bordered by Yorkshire to the north, Nottinghamshire to the east, Leicestershire to the southeast, Staffordshire to the southwest, and Cheshire to the west. As always, is a map showing its precise location within England on the blog at Three Ravens Podcast. I'll be honest, I don't think I've ever been to Derbyshire. I might have. I mean, I've said the same thing on previous episodes, then realised that actually I've been to loads (laughs) of places in that county, but let's see. Okay, excellent. Well, Derbyshire's county motto is Bene Consolendo, meaning be wise by deliberation, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah, it suggests a gentle pace of life. Take your time and think before deciding. Feels like good advice to live by. Yet, I don't think it would be quite right to talk about Derbyshire as a totally chilled place, as we will discuss. But while we're here, the county also has a county flower. Oh, excellent. Not enough counties have a county flower. Yeah, Derbyshire's county flower is the Jacob's Ladder, named after the mythical ladder to heaven, as mentioned in the book of Genesis. Still, let's start at the beginning when Derbyshire is mentioned for the very first time, which is in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. And cool story, it comes into being because of an earthquake. Sorry, what? Yep. In May 1048, there's a massive earthquake which devastates much of the Midlands, at which point a huge wildfire breaks out. It rips through the Peak District, killing thousands of people and destroying whole towns and villages. And this sees what then becomes Derbyshire split off from the Kingdom of Mercia, with the Mercian kings basically just abandoning it as lost. Wow, a county forged in fire and earthquakes. That is an epic beginning. Well, to be fair, the land of what then became Derbyshire was actually really important way before then. In fact, it's packed to the gunnels with Paleolithic and Neolithic remains and standing stones. There is an axe that was found at the village of Hopton, thought to date from around 200,000 years ago. So that's between the ice ages. No, 200,000. Wow. I'm sorry, I actually struggle to compute that. (laughs) Just jump forward in time. That's too far back. That's too old. Okay, well, do you remember we spoke about Cresswell Crags way back in our Nottinghamshire episode? Yes, that's where they found Pinhole Caveman and the Ochre Horse in Robin Hood Cave, among many other ancient, ancient things. Well... Cresswell Crags stretches into Derbyshire from Nottinghamshire, so the people of Derbyshire can also lay claim to those most ancient, ancient things. And by ancient, we're talking about Cresswell Crags and its artefacts dating from, you know, maybe 13,000 or 12,000 years ago. 13,000 years old is still insanely old. (laughs) And so... Wait, am I right in thinking, based on the various Nottinghamshire finds we talked about, that ancient hyenas and woolly rhinoceros were also rampaging around in Derbyshire? Yep, and other similar caves beyond Cresswell, including Dowell Cave, Fox Cave, Ash Tree Cave and Langwith Cave, all of these places are pretty amazing, all having their own digs and finds, though not all are widely accessible to the public. Well, lesson one, Derbyshire has many old things in its caves. (laughs) But also, you mentioned Standing Stones a moment ago. Oh, yeah. There is a long list, including Arbor Low, which is where I've set my story today, a very famous megalithic ring, probably England's third most famous after Stonehenge and Avebury. But there's also Dole Tor, Nine Ladies, Nine Stones Close and the Bull Ring. There's tombs at Minninglow and Five Wells that date back to at least 2,500 years ago. But, and this is maybe the prize-winning find, in 1984, near Buxton, 
archaeologists unearthed a Mesolithic settlement consisting of a timber roundhouse and Neolithic longhouses, which means there were Stone Age settlements in Derbyshire maybe as early as 15,000 years ago. Again, this is such an incredibly long time ago, it boggles the mind. Mm. But also, aren't settlements that old incredibly rare? Because from what we know, people in that sort of time lived mostly alone, not in settlements. I mean, as far as I recall, we haven't encountered evidence of settlements that old in any other county apart from Devon. Pretty much. I mean, who knows what's yet to be found buried in the earth elsewhere in England, but these settlements near Buxton would seem to suggest that Derbyshire was amongst the very first parts of England to have developed villages way back after the last ice age. That is amazing. And you mentioned Buxton. Is that the same Buxton that's famous for mineral water? It is. One of the UK's leading brands of mineral water comes from Buxton, and the springs at Buxton were important to the Romans too. They founded a spa town there called Aquae Arnometae. That sounds quite a lot like Aquasulis, which is what the Romans called Bath down in Somerset, which yep. makes me wonder, because Sulis was the goddess of the hot springs in Bath, a sort of genius loci yeah. or a local god or spirit. So does this mean Buxton also had its own regional deity? It sure did, and her name was Arnometia, the goddess of the sacred grove. What? Yep, we think she was a fertility goddess, and she and Sulis are the only two goddesses of this kind from all of Roman Britain. In fact, we have evidence that Hadrian, him of Hadrian's Wall, visited Aquae Arnamitae in about 121 AD. And in Buxton Museum, there are collections of bronze jewellery, coins and Roman artefacts as excavated in the 1970s, which include sacrifices made to the goddess Arnamitia, just like those made to Sulis in Bath. Why don't people know this? Mm. I mean, Bath is so famous for the Roman baths. Why isn't Buxton? Surely it should be just as rammed with tourists. Well, basically, it's because the Roman shrines at Bath were excavated and are now open to the elements. They're a tourist attraction, whereas the Buxton Shrine Complex is sadly still underground. During the Georgian era, they built a secondary spa complex right on top of it. So, you know, archaeologists have at least explored parts of it. They've just never dug it out. And that's mostly because it's in the middle of the town centre with centuries of life and houses and all sorts of other stuff having been built on top. Wow. Makes you wonder, though, about quite how many Roman houses and temples there might be beneath your feet any time you visit a town that was once a Roman settlement, isn't it? I mean, in Derbyshire, there's going to be the ancient Roman lead mines in the Derbyshire Dales. They're near the towns of Worksworth and Carsington. Plus, there's Roman forts at Glossop, Chesterfield and Derby. The Romans loved it round there, evidently. And do we know why? Was it because of the lead? It was. The Romans were mad about lead, weren't they? They used it for all sorts, not least plumbing. Despite the fact it was slowly poisoning them every time they had a drink that came through those pipes. Good job, Romans. (laughs) So uh, next, during the Saxon era, as mentioned, Derbyshire was part of Mercia, although the Danes, what we might call the Vikings, kept invading, sailing up the River Trent. They loved sailing up rivers, didn't they? I had always, before we started Three Ravens, presumed that they raided the East Coast, but nope. All up the Midlands, here come the Vikings seeking plunder. In a big way, too. For example, Derby itself was occupied on and off by the Vikings, despite it being in Mercian territory. And I've got to say, I think this is insanely cool. Near what is now known as the village of Repton, there's a place called Heath Wood. And at Heath Wood, there's a massive Viking burial ground consisting of a whopping 
59 barrow tombs. 59? Yep. It's the only giant Viking barrow complex ever found. And check this, since the 19th century, nobody has really poked about inside them to do excavations. So who even knows what's there? You're kidding. Nope. I mean... I'm imagining there's maybe not a whole other radwall to find, but still, who knows? <laughs> maybe we should get the spade out of the shed. There could be gold in them, their hills. <laughs> or, or gold in that there wood, I guess. Mm. Either way, as mentioned in previous episodes, it's probably quite unlikely, as lots of England's barrow tombs have been completely stripped of valuables across the centuries. Still, it seems crazy that so many of the sites across Derbyshire haven't been properly excavated since the days of Victorian gentlemen dabbling at it on Weekends. Come on, historic England. And likewise, England's detectorist societies. Let's see what's down there. Yeah, now, otherwise we know that the Saxons built a cathedral in Derby itself, which was the historic county town. It's now the largest city in the county. They built that church around 943 AD. Sadly, it became unstable and was demolished in the 1300s, replaced with another cathedral, which, well, that one also fell down as did the next iteration, with the current Derby Cathedral being a combination of a tower built during the reign of Mary I, while the rest of the building was constructed in 1725. Wow, that's going to be a curious mismatch of a cathedral. (laughs) But also, that would seem to imply that maybe the Normans didn't see Derbyshire as perhaps quite as important as some of the other counties we've spoken about. And I say that because if the Normans thought a place was spicy and exciting, then without fail, they built a (laughs) whacking great cathedral. I mean, did they build many castles in Derbyshire? Well, in 1176, Henry II built a pretty spectacular castle called Peveril Castle. That's near the appropriately named Castleton. Uh, Peveril is a ruin today, managed by English heritage, but it's a pretty stunning ruin as these things go, with genuinely incredible views. Definitely check the pictures on the blog. But beyond Peveril, there's only one other castle in the whole county, and that's Bolsover Castle. The same Norman lord who built Peveril Castle, William Peveril, initially built a teeny tiny castle there. A little baby castle. Yeah, just a little baby one. But that was then knocked down and replaced in 1612 by the Dukes of Devonshire. They then built what we call Boltsover Castle today, which is a whacking great Jacobean mansion, one that survives intact and is a stunning place, also managed by English Heritage. On their website, they emphasise its aristocratic extravagance. Ah, to live in aristocratic extravagance. <laughs> Actually, scrap that. I don't need the aristocratic part. I just like to live in extravagance. Double scoops of ice cream and lashings of lashings of ginger beer all round. <laughs> well, talking of extravagance, during the 17th century, particularly during the Elizabethan era, Derbyshire then undergoes a whacking great boom in mansion building. In fact, some time ago, you spoke about prodigy houses. I did. They're a kind of vast mansion, ostentatiously designed in a kind of Renaissance style. Load of windows, lots of silly twiddly bits. Maybe the most famous one is Hardwick Hall, which was built by Bess of Hardwick. Well, Hardwick Hall is actually in Derbyshire. Oh, well, in which case, I have been to Derbyshire. (laughs) Hardwick Hall is one of the most incredible buildings I've ever visited. It's absolutely stunning. It is, and it's one of several such grand prodigy houses in the county. These include Chatsworth House, the main seats of the Dukes of Devonshire, plus Balborough Hall, which is now a boarding school. You'll be happy to hear that in the Civil War, the county very much sided with Parliament. Excellent. Well done, Derbyshire. But then, after the Restoration, there was a very famous event in Derbyshire as, during the Great Plague of 1665, the village of Eam 
famously isolated itself to prevent the bubonic plague spreading out to the surrounding towns and villages. This is such a sad story. I would love to visit Eam, but the story is so affecting. Yeah, basically, in 1665, a flea-infested bundle of cloth arrived in Eam from London. The local tailor opened it, caught the plague and died a week later, and the whole village of 350 people chose to quarantine themselves to save the neighbouring villagers. For food, those same neighbouring villagers would come to Eam and leave food on special boundary stones outside the village. And the people of Eam dug holes that they filled with vinegar, leaving money in the villager to disinfect it to pay for the food that the people brought to keep them going. Oh my goodness. It, it makes you want to cry because it wasn't very effective. No. Many people died in yeah. Eam, didn't they? Well, you can still visit Eam and they did save a lot of other people's lives. The town or, or village is much bigger than it was but there's remnants of the homes from the time those same boundary stones are still there and out of that population of 350 it's recorded that 273 of the villagers died you can visit their graves all of which were dug by one man Marshall Howe, who was one of the few people to have survived the 14 months that Ian remained in self-imposed isolation. Oh, it's such a powerful story. And I know we're just touching on it now, but if you're interested in learning more about what happened at Eam, do look it up. I mean, it's inspired so much other work yeah. as well. Uh, poetry, novels, operas. I've seen two distinct plays on the subject. Yeah. There's a really tragic love story at the heart of it between um, one of the women who lived in the village and her lover who was from a different village and they could never meet again oh, and he never saw her again so and she was sad. she died it is, it's fascinating it's very sad yeah well after that during the industrial revolution the county then became wealthy due to continued but intensified lead mining plus limestone quarrying along with most importantly cotton. The county was absolutely central to the development of industrial cotton spinning, with Derwent Valley Mills being a UNESCO World Heritage Site, plus Cromford Mill, Masson Mills and Derby Silk Mill also being vital places in the story of English textiles. And that, I'm guessing, kind of brings us up to where modern Derbyshire begins, mm. which of course means it's high time to stop talking about history and start talking about folklore. <laughs> yes, indeed. And we started talking about Derbyshire's birth through wine wildfires. Well, to this day, one of the most curious folkloric occurrences in the county is the Longdendale Lights, also known as the Devil's Bonfire. Oh, they sound exciting. Mm. I'm going to guess, based on most other mystical lights we've encountered, that these are a kind of Ignis Fatuous or Will-o'-the-Wisp type thing. Well, it seems not, actually. Ghost lights are a common feature of Pennine's lore dating back centuries, and the Longdendale Valley is a huge area, stunningly beautiful, but the Longdendale lights are quite unlike Will-o'-the-Wisps. Rather than being isolated low fires, they're sometimes known to shoot right up into the clouds. In recent years, they've been mistaken for distress flares. Whoa. And although they do appear in isolation sometimes, they do also occur in groups and are said to dance and move, appear in different colours. And for many years, there was a live webcam feed running at hauntedvalleys.com where people could watch them from all over the world. You're kidding. Is the video feed still running? 
sadly not. And I did have a little look around for another one. If someone else knows different, email us a link to 3ravenspodcast.gmail.com. But there's been loads of theories about them over the years, from the lights being caused by the ghosts of Roman centurions to UFOs to gases bubbling up from deep within the Earth. It's a genuine mystery as to what they actually are. But the Devil's Bonfires in Longdendale Valley are a proper thing. And if they are UFOs, then I don't want a damn thing to do with them. Understandably, (laughs) Three Ravens is a probe-free zone. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on the lighter side of things... In the wassailing tradition, Derbyshire is famous for a particular costume, the Derby Ram, also known as Old Tup. The character is thought to perhaps come from the ancient Greco-Roman god Pan, perhaps from the devil, but the character was a common feature both of wassailing around Christmas and associated Mummer's Place, and was known to have spread to parts of Yorkshire and Nottinghamshire during the 19th century. That's fun, and that's quite the name. Yeah. And I wonder why Old Tup was called that (laughs) (laughs) well the theory is that because he falls down and falls over he was originally old topsy-turvy and they abbreviated it to old top oh okay but you know top is renaissance slang for well is it making the uh, beast with two backs? Oh my goodness! Yeah, so I wonder Scandalous. if there's a slightly naughty, yeah. sexy oh, aspect to old top. Probably tub. is. There, there yeah. almost must be. I, I mean, obviously we've got hobby horse traditions all over the place, yeah. haven't we? And, and bull-headed costumes quite common as well. But I do like the idea of old top rampaging around. Rampaging. Yeah, you have me. <laughs> Move it along. <laughs> okay. Elsewhere at Nine Stones Close on Hart Hill Moor, there's a stone circle, as the name might suggest, containing nine stones. But how those stones came to be there is a pretty fun variation on examples like Long Meg and her daughters. Oh, yeah, because those kinds of stories, a bit like the Rollwright stones, tend to involve some sort of moment of transgression where a group, often of women, sometimes of knights, yes. are somehow turned to stone. And that's what's said to have happened at Nine Stones Close. Only on this particular occasion, it's said that there were nine women out dancing on a Sunday perhaps to music provided by a local king, and that's why you have the Kingstone, only as they're having their jig, a giant lumbers by and isn't impressed, so he puts one foot onto either pinnacle of Robin's Hood stride, this nearby rock formation, then pulls down his gianty pants and urinates all over the valley, a process which promptly turned the nine ladies dancing and the king stone. Whoa, so, hold on, hold on. Was it the giant's pee that turned them to stone? Or the sight of the giant's equipment that shot them so much they transformed into an ancient monument? It's unclear. But I'm going to suggest it was most likely a combination of the two. So watch out for giant's pee, everyone. And also, if you spy a giant taking down its trousers, avert your gaze! But otherwise it's perfectly safe to dance on Sunday, so carry on, ladies, shake it on down. <laughs> now, something else Derbyshire is famous for is Hobbs. Rihanna Pratchett did an excellent episode about Hobbs in her Mythical Creatures series for the BBC. And our friend within the Boggart Wood also did a super Hobbs story last year. Oh, it was good. It was good. But in case you're not familiar with the Hob, also known as a Hobgoblin, it's a specific type of household sprite. You're meant to leave milk out for them, aren't you? You are. They famously very much enjoy sitting by the fire. In some tellings, they will actually sit partially in the fire. But the idea is, if you leave milk out, and manage to attract
attract a hob, it will then become a helpful spirit around your house. They're said to be quite small and hairy and terribly ugly, but if you're nice to them, then they'll help you with all sorts of things from cleaning to looking after your livestock to helping you find things you've lost. They're meant to be lovely little creatures. I keep leaving milk out and frankly they're welcome to it. Milk is horrible. But we're yet to nab one, aren't we? Yeah, we are. But uh, they are much more of a Northern Counties creature. But what's fun about the hob tradition in Derbyshire is that there are literally dozens of places in Derbyshire named after hobs across the county, including Hobhurst House, which is a burial mound, Hobbs House Cave in Monsell Dale, Hobthurst's Cave in Deepdale, and many others. And some of these places, not least Hobthurst's Cave, are evidently places where people left votive offerings to the hobs that lived there, with artefacts found within that cave, including a pretty incredible dragon brooch dating from around 100 AD, which is on display at Buxton Museum. Sounds to me like we need to go to Buxton. Yeah. <laughs> well, the museum evidently contains loads of really cool stuff, and I'm, I'm still pretty intent on digging out the ruined Roman bath. Let's make a day of it. Let's make a day. You can do it in a day, do you reckon? Yeah, I reckon if we're disciplined. Okay. Good scheduling. Hobbs aside, the main entity Derbyshire is famous for is the Boggart. There are, again, loads of places associated with Boggarts, one of them being Arbelow, which my story is about today, but they crop up everywhere. And we've spoken about them a bit before, but just to be clear... What is a boggart? Well, boggarts are, in essence, anything a bit creepy. <laughs> it's the root term that developed into bogeyman, but they're also known as bogles, bugbears and bogies. It's very much a northern counties term that can refer to anything from a local spirit or monster to a ghost. But one of the coolest things I read about was Boggart stones. Oh, hello. And what pray tell is a Boggart stone? So, well, we've talked quite a lot about mining in Derbyshire. Boggart stones are a kind of quartz nodule found around the county, which, when rubbed together, Boggart stones will emit a brimstone-like odour, and sometimes they're said to emit a blue-white light enough to glow in the dark. Boy, they sound amazing. Boggart stones. So how do we get our hands on some? Well, they're also known as stink stones, <laughs> devil stones and fairy stones. They were mostly said to be found in gravel, and apparently this is not just a folkloric thing. Some quartz stones, if you rub them together, will both smell a bit like sulphur and, from time to time, emit electrical charges of blue-white light. I think I need to spend some time playing with our chunks of quartz, because <laughs> I blooming love the stuff. And if I can A, make bad smells with them and B, make lightning, I don't think I'll have many reasons to leave the house. I'll just stay home making stinky electricity all day. Well, before you do, it's probably time for me to tell my story for the week. And dear listener, you may have noticed that I've not yet mentioned a single Derbyshire ghost. That's because my story this week is a creepy one. So I've kept my powder dry. Uh-oh. The tale is called The Boggarts of Arbalow. And I'll start spinning my yarn. Right after this. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. 
Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It was late January when Mr. Strines finally clambered into his motor car and took the long drive north to Middleton by Yulegrave. An antique bookseller of some renown, Strines was resident at Mag's Brothers Bookshop in Berkeley Square. Mag's remains a fine London establishment famed for both its trade since 1853 in rare books and manuscripts, and since the 1840s, the legendary Nameless Horror, which once haunted its upstairs apartments. The hauntings at number 50 Berkeley Square, with the associated death from terror of Sir Robert Warboys, the creeping madness which corrupted the subsequent resident Thomas Myers, several maids, and the famed 1872 hunting trip to catch the nameless horror by Lord Littleton further embellished the building's reputation. None would live in those apartments, and while book sales continued below, it lived above, shrouded in mystery. That was until 1930, when Strine's grandfather, Ludovico, a German émigré, pianist and occult historian, solved the riddle. Whatever he did to cleanse the malevolent spirit, he never spoke of it, though rumours still swirled. The being was said to have manifested as anything from a seething tentacle demon to a vast and ominous man-shaped shadow. Either way, since Ludovico's great feat of banishment, members of the Strines family had been gifted the use of the attic at 50 Berkeley Square in perpetuity. By the time of the death of Ludovico Strines, his son, Otto, was already happily ensconced in Golders Green with his wife, Matilda, and their son, Dieter, along with three other children. In later years, Dieter and his father grew apart, feuding over matters of faith, heritage and money, but most fractious was Otto's insistence on controlling Dieter's chosen vocation. While a talented pianist himself, Otto Strines ultimately made his living through owning apartment stores. He was a successful entrepreneur and sought for his son to attend the Royal Academy of Music and become the great piano player of his age. Alas, while he played beautifully, Dieter truly only cared for his grandfather's other curiosities. He would leaf through the old man's ancient books, his pages of scribbled notes and collections of Orphic apparatus, his shells of dusty crystals and homemade arcane tools. It was perhaps unsurprising then that when, after a particularly heated quarrel, Dieter stormed out of his father's house, never to return. He took a steamer trunk filled not with sheet music, but his grandfather's rarest occult treasures. These he moved to the long, empty apartment in the attic at 50 Berkeley Square, making it his home, never playing the piano again. 
In the years that followed, Dieter, or Mr. Strines, as he was known to all who made his acquaintance, became a person to whom people turned in times of particular trouble. Stacks of his business cards might still be found beneath the counter at Atlantis Books, Watkins or Treadwells, along with other such occult booksellers up and down England. Across his long life and career, he encountered all number of spooks and spectres, monstrous beasts and strange apparitions. This earned him a reputation for the discreet and sensitive handling of arcane phenomenon, though in his latter years he focused on his primary means of income, the selling of rare books, which he did with great pleasure and personal sensitivity. Quite how Mr. Strines came to be contacted by Jacob Kendall remained somewhat of a mystery, even as he drove north. Strines' dealings in Derbyshire had been scant over the years, though his grandfather's assistance of John Henry Montague Manners, the ninth Duke of Rutland, in exercising the worst manifestations at Haddon Hall had led to a long association between the two families. When Lord Edward, brother of the present Duke, had called on Mr. Strines to purge the last remaining spirit of the place, that of the wronged mistress, Dorothy Vernon, he had, of course, complied. Though that was almost a decade ago. What business Lord Edward might have with a man like Jacob Kendall, Mr. Strines could not hope to guess. But his letter had been warm and piqued Strines' curiosity, so he, of course, replied. The issue at hand was a set of three ancient cottages at Spore, a now-abandoned hamlet in a quiet Derbyshire valley. Jacob Kendall was a builder, hired to demolish the cottages and construct a new electricity substation. Only no sooner had Mr. Kendall set about beginning his work than the disturbances began. The noises of people tramping up and down stairs in heavy clogs. The sound of chairs and other articles of furniture being moved. This was all in spite of the cottages having been abandoned 40 years before. Their roofs and ceilings had fallen in. The buildings had no upper or lower floors, no staircases, and absolutely no furniture. As Mr. Kendall had explained in his letters, he persevered undeterred, all until an apparition made itself known. It was a little girl of apparently three or four years of age, wearing a buff nankeen bonnet, and it offered him a handful of gold. Wisely, Mr. Kendall had retreated from the place, seeking such advice as led to Mr. Strines. This had been a sage choice, as the ghost of a child is never what it appears to be. Indeed, should he have accepted that gold Strines knew, then Mr. Kendall's fate would have taken a dark turn, perhaps irrevocably so. Mr. Strines shunned all things electrical on account of their interference with his instruments as well as his mind, so he had corresponded with Mr. Kendall by letter, as was his way. Missives were exchanged throughout the autumn of 2023, Strines making arrangements to visit Spore in the new year. His journey north had initially been planned for shortly after Christmas, but was delayed on account of Storms Hank and Aisha. This meant it was almost Imok by the time he'd made the trip, ensconced in his trusty Sunbeam Tiger, a classic motor car he kept running at great expense. 
He was, at the time, aged 71, and dressed in a warm woolen suit, wrapped in a thick overcoat, scarves, gloves, and eight-piece cap of Donegal tweed, all chosen to guard against the cold. By this time, Mr. Strines was, of course, semi-retired. His hair was thin, teeth worse for wear, but he was otherwise healthy. He joked that this was because he'd never married, although he had loved many men and many women across his several decades, and knew heartbreak as well as anyone. Still, he considered himself lucky to have avoided the many complications associated with matrimony, including children and home ownership. He was instead content with his work, not least his books, and dined with friends, making weekend visits to those corners of England where he'd never encountered a demon, ghoul, or creature of darkness to spare himself from painful memories. He thought to take this case because it seemed simple enough, and had set out before dawn, travelling up the M1 via Luton, Leicester, and Derby. He knew Mr. Kendall would be unable to meet him until the late afternoon, but the builder had kindly arranged for Strines to meet a Mr. Winsford, a member of the local historical society at the Village Stone, at the heart of Middleton by Yulgrave that morning, for a walk about the outlines of the parish. As Strines drove into Middleton, he wondered whether it might be possible to find a more attractive, less spoilt village in the whole of the Peak District. Situated on an unclassified loop road, it was out of the way, yet only a short distance from one of Derbyshire's loveliest dales and surrounded by excellent walking country. This said, Strines was bemused to see, striding out onto the heath beside Ray Lane, a gentleman dressed in not a single stitch. Considering the temperature, which was brisk at best, Strines found himself smiling at the sight. While perhaps invigorating, taking such a bracing, naked ramble at the tail end of winter seemed foolhardy and a sure route to catching exposure. Strines slid the sunbeam down Middleton's spacious main street, which was lined with pretty limestone cottages, and came to a stop not far from the village square. He knew little of the traditions of the place, beside that the village held an annual well-dressing on the 25th of May, and that once a year, on the 10th of February, the long-closed pub, the Bateman Arms, was revived in the village hall. These quaint happenings, which he learned of via Kendall's letters, seemed suitably esoteric. Yet, as with everywhere in England, there was no doubt all manner of mysteries in the village's past. Having come to know far too much about so many like places, however, which had filled Strine's mind with so much history, in his latter days he'd become less inclined to read about them in advance. Rather, if commissioned to assist in a case, he would learn as little as possible until there, soaking up salient facts as he went, forgetting as much as he could as quickly as possible. It was, he thought, hard enough to remember friends' birthdays or where he'd left a given umbrella or walking cane. Besides, he needed no more reasons to lie awake in his room until dawn. As such, it was Strine's intention to let Mr. Winsford show him the village and its curiosities, but to have the experience wash over him like he were a rock in a flowing stream. 
and when he parked up and climbed out of the sunbeam, he was pleased to see a gentleman much the same age as himself sat on a bench beside the village stone, so he strode over to make his introductions. Mr. Winsford, I presume, Strine said. As he did, however, he felt the hairs rise on his forearms, which was never a good sign. The old man on the bench said nothing, though he turned to Strines as if slightly perplexed. This new acquaintance then stood and Strines observed him. He was dressed in a green cardigan and brown trousers which were tucked into walking boots. His eyes were blue, his cheeks pale and his silver hair mid-length and tousled by the wind. In response to his silence, Strines spoke again, rubbing his forearms though far from cold. Mr. Kendall said you would meet me and show me the highlights. He said something of the sights of meaning. And, of course, I must see Arbalo. Arbalo, the old stranger said. Aye, and the sights of meaning. Is this place... Well, no matter. Come on, then. Let's bobby off. Strines looked back at his car considering whether he ought to bring more with him. He already had a tuning fork in his pocket, which was a bare essential, but the rest of his equipment was in the steamer trunk on the Sunbeam's back seat. Likewise, his luggage. Yet he knew the bed and breakfast where he'd booked to stay would not be ready for him until later that day, so shrugged off the unsettling feeling. He nonetheless implored Mr. Winsford to wait for a moment, the old man did just that, standing some way off and watching as Strines changed into his trusty rambler's boots and pulled his long walking stick from its place in the rear footwell. Carved of hazel, the staff was as tall as Strines, a space in its head socketed for varying purposes. At present, it was embedded with an orb of black obsidian, and no sooner had he touched it than he felt his nerves calm and the uneasy sensation melting away. And what have you got there? The old man said on seeing it, peering from a distance. Ah, Strines replied, in my line of work you can never be too careful, not least when the ground's wet. Don't want to slip. Now, lay on Macduff, and damn be him that first cries, hold, enough! Mr. Winsford was evidently not, Strines thought, a man of letters. Instead of smiling, he turned and began striding away, on towards Roughwood Hollow, speaking roughly over his shoulder. "'Houses there,' he said, pointing to either side of the broad main street. "'Built in 1820 by Thomas Bateman. I presume you know of Mr. Bateman?' "'Oh, yes,' Strines replied. "'A famed barrow-delver, member of the British Archaeological Association, "'and, if I'm not mistaken, author of The Vestiges of the Antiquities of Derbyshire, "'a fine volume worth a pretty penny if in good condition. "'Called himself the Barrow Knight. "'Dug up near three hundred tombs in his day. "'Buried yonder with his child, Sarah, in a lonely spot, "'up the hill behind the chapel of St. Michael and all angels. "'In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength.' "'Isaiah 30.50,' Strines replied, bemused. "'The old man had stopped walking, "'and Strines noticed he was now pointing to a carved stone seat. 
Strines looked at it, presuming it was intended for use by weary walkers trudging up from Bradford Dale. Then he spied, engraved in the granite, the quote from the scripture his companion had just muttered. Well, well, Strines said, inclined to take out his spectacles for closer inspection. How curious. Though when he turned to look, he saw that the old man had already walked on. Realising there was no time to pause, Strines followed. As he did, he thought Mr. Winsford strangely quiet, the old man saying nothing until they were midway across the Bradford Dale Bridge. Still glides the stream and shall forever glide, he murmured. The form remains, the function never dies. Strines nodded, noting that, again, this quote, which came from Wordsworth, was also carved into a stone seat. This one was midway across the stone bridge, its sides worn smooth through use. Strines inhaled deeply, enjoying the moment, for the air was filled with the sounds of running water and of the wind teasing at the trees. He thought it a beautiful spot to sit and rest, so made remarks to that effect, saying, Quite the place, Mr. Winsford. No reply was forthcoming, however, for Mr. Winsford was already gone, his shape disappearing off down a nearby lane. The walk continued in much the same manner for the rest of the morning, including a stop at an ancient sheep dip, where, in late May or June, generations of farmers had brought their flocks to wash their fleeces. It was, Strines thought, a hard, cold, murky place, and he was unsettled when the hairs on his forearms again stood on end. This was in spite of the obsidian orb in the head of his staff, a sure sign that the spot was haunted. So much so, in fact, that his head began to ache. Of this sensation, Strines said nothing, feeling Mr. Winsford was not a man inclined towards superstition. Strines watched him, trudging on through the damp leaves and by bare trees, and touched at the case in his breast pocket. He had no cause to open it, he thought, but he was reassured to know it was there. On they ventured, down the pathway between Rollo Dale and the road to Smerrill, the view overlooking Rusden Wood. When they came to the old Clapper Bridge, again they stopped spying another engraved seat. This one, a quote from Pope, it read, Consult the genius of the place in all that tells the waters to rise or fall. Men came and said no such inscription were to be made, Mr. Winsford announced. But the bridge were broken, down to just one channel. We fixed it, laid the slab, Local folk of the authority here. Besides, there's a boggart. Not that outsiders would know to look. Broken things only make them stronger. A boggart? Strines replied. He acted surprised, but had guessed as much from the sweat on the back of his neck, the bristling hairs on his forearms, and the steady ache which had developed behind his left eye. Aye. A brownie turned bad, a large something, long ears, horns and tail, glides by and vanishes out of sight. No trouble, not that one at least. The old man once again walked off, striding quickly away from Mr. Strines, who followed on as they passed down Lowfield Lane to Rolo Brook. 
Strines thought it strange that Winsford mentioned it, not least as it was common knowledge that to mention a boggart only made it stronger. Still, they continued to walk in a silence which felt frosty and unkind. So, as they made their way, Strines risked a new line of conversation, hoping to warm the mood of his new associate. You know, Mr. Winsford, Strines said, driving into the village this morning, I saw the strangest thing. There was a gentleman walking up onto the dale naked, came the reply. I, Mr. Higginson, John, died 1876, was a peddler in his day. Likes to show people his backside. Ah, Strine said, nodding. Winsford was clearly disinclined to say more on the subject, yet this admission, along with the mention of the Clapper Bridge boggart, did at least make clear that the old man was a believer. This reassured Strines, for, though he had only come to Middleton by Yulegrave to help Mr. Kendall with his issue at Spore Cottages, he knew that any village with this many spectral inhabitants had to hold a deeper set of secrets. A local historian would be a useful resource, though Strines felt it likely that all these phenomena pertained to Arbor Low, a site he'd never visited but had read of a great many times. Located in the midst of the White Peaks, the monument dated from 2500 BC. It took the same form as nearby Bullring at Dove Holes, Cairn Papal Hill and Stenness Stones in Scotland, and Wiltshire's Avebury Ring. Containing 43 stones, many broken to fragments and all laid flat but one, it was encircled by a ditch 7 feet deep and 33 feet wide. This was bisected by two causeway entrances, which aligned with sunrise on midsummer, as did the six stones known as the Cove. These slabs formed what was said to be a central altar of long-forgotten use, and this basic formation was repeated time and again at monuments across the country. Likewise, the earth dug up to form ditches at monuments like these had been used to make cremation barrows, the Arbor Low example known as Jib Hill. Though the site had not been excavated for over a century, Thomas Bateman, the Barrow Knight himself, had found bone and antler tools, flint scrapers and arrowheads beneath the earth. It was also reputed, Strines knew, to be crawling with boggarts, something he recalled from his research into St. Michael's Lay, back when he had sealed the weird stone at Glastonbury many years before. Strines had never been inclined to visit Arbelow of his own volition, but he had read of its strange significance. Forming an exact Pythagorean triangle just two degrees north from Stonehenge, one degree east from Glastonbury, and a second with Kalanish megaliths in Scotland's Outer Hebrides, a third with Bryn Chelly Thu on the Isle of Anglesey, it was, he knew, the midpoint or heart of a ley line network. It was a place of ancient power, whose language was lost even to him. But if past experiences were anything to go by, Arbelow still wanted to speak, even if its utterances would not be understood. Strines was shaken from his contemplations by a sudden and almighty roar. 
It was that of two vast motor engines. They were thundering overhead, yet low, so low as to make Strine's flesh quake and his bones shudder. Gripping his staff, he spun on his heels, staring into the white-grey sky. And there he saw it, to his amazement, a Vickers Wellington bomber, a long-range aircraft, belching black smoke and falling slowly but surely out of the sky. By the heavens! Strines exclaimed, watching as the plane sailed, droning, down from above and headlong towards the cold earth of a nearby field. He listened for the sound of the crash, looked to see the flames rising and trail of smoke, but none were forthcoming. He turned then to look at Mr. Winsford, who was stood down the lane and staring back, seemingly disinterested. He came down on 21st of January 1944. Killed six. Royal Australian Air Force, but here's what we're here to see. Heart thundering, Strines approached the old man, moving off further down the track, and there, nestled in the hedgerow, Strines saw it. A granite hand, carved in the manner of so many guide stoops across Derbyshire. Below it, there was another quotation, etched into the stone, which Strines read aloud. To see a world in a grain of sand, and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand, and eternity in an hour. William Blake, he thought, from the auguries of innocence. Macabre verse, though few ever read it in full. Again he touched his breast pocket, quickening his pace as Mr. Winsford had long since wandered on. Their subsequent route took them along the path to Longdale, by the Boulderstone, and up to Fryden Benz. The quote there came from Heraclitus. The road up and the road down are one and the same. Strines knew this particular piece of wisdom to be a lie, but did not remark upon it. By then, the pair had walked several miles, and though Strines was hungry, he hung back a little, watching Mr. Winsford from afar. Indeed, he slowed his pace to a near crawl at the point where Green Lane crossed the path of the old Roman road, after which they finally started journeying north, on towards Arbor Low. As Strines walked, he kept one eye on Mr Winsford, but also stared out into Middleton Common. It was there that he spied another horror, though did not mention it. This was, he considered, among the most disturbing examples he'd seen in recent years. Having always been slightly unsettled by infants with their rounded features, wet lips, and shiny little eyes, he knew, even in his youth, that he could never make a good father. Then, when he saw apparitions of children as he had many times, he assured himself that entities chose such shapes to appear innocent, as if they were vulnerable, intending to fool those mortal souls they were hoping to entrap. On this occasion, it was the ghost of a baby. Unclothed yet, blood-spattered, it was crawling across the rough scrub of the heath, mewling as if in pain. Strines glanced at it, a tiny, 
white shape struggling along through the rough ground. Its bandy legs and knees moved awkwardly as it crawled, though the grasses did not shift where it passed. He tried to look away to focus on Winsford, but his eye was drawn back to it again and again. That was until an invisible hand seemed to grasp the child's left back leg and lift it into the air, swinging it about before slamming the tiny shape down onto the turf. Strines shut his eyes at the last moment, unable to watch, listening to the bottom of his staff clacking on the ground as he walked. Then, when he opened his eyes again, the apparition had vanished. Strines considered the period when he knew such things happened, the killing of infants, and wondered if there had once been a castle at Middleton. This was as, during the Civil War, both the Roundheads and Royalists were wont to kill the children of their enemies by such violent means before leaving the bodies displayed on pikes as warnings to any standing against them. Though the circular walk around Middleton's sites of meaning continued on from Arbolo, Mr. Strines never made it along the route south of Lathkill Dale to the Bugle Stone or up to the path on from Cale's Farm to Long Rake. If he had, he would have seen the buildings of Castle Farm, built using the ruins of Middleton Castle. That had been the building where Sir Christopher Fullwood mounted a defence against just such a roundhead invasion. Sir Christopher had raised an army of lead miners to fight for the king, but when they were surprised, his soldiers fled. During the raid, Cromwell's forces shot Sir Christopher, and he too then escaped to the top of the dale. There he hid in a crevice in a cliff and was discovered days later, having died from his injuries. After that rout, Middleton Castle was broken down. The stone used in the construction of many buildings around the village, not least Castle Farm, though the earthworks still stand in the field opposite Chapel House. And Mr. Strines would have remarked on them, had he made it that far, considering the final inscription at that spot, which reads, Live as if you'll die tomorrow, farm as if you'll live forever. This was an old Derbyshire saying, the first part of which was an adage Steins had lived by ever since his young manhood. Instead, however, his journey ended at Arbolow. For it was there, as he approached the vast circular dyke, that he found his reticent companion waiting, beckoning him inside. Quite the walk, the old man said, offering the first smile of the day. But we've made good time. The sun's only now starting to come down. Strines stared up at the clouds, feeling the wind whip suddenly so much colder. So, Strines said, here we are, the famous Arbor Low. Aye, come into the ring, I must show you the cove. Strines licked his teeth beneath his lips, almost stumbling, for at that moment not only did his forearms tickle with prickling hairs, but the back of his neck was hot. His head ached, and he heard his blood rushing in his ears. He made his way forward uneasily, leaning on his staff to stay upright, for he felt dizzy, though he approached the cove and the figure of the old man standing behind it. The six stones there were laid out in a rectangle, much like a coffin, yet the grass all about was cut short. 
This meant that the whole body of a man could lie comfortably within the cove. This was likely why, Strines thought, the grass of that place looked lush. Much like the turf at Stonehenge, Avebury, Cairnpapple Hill and Stenness Stones, it had been fed for so many years, and not just with sun and rain. Come, said the old man, still smiling. Kneel and look into the cove. What you'll see there is the greatest marvel of this whole place. His jaws clenched. Strines smiled grimly, laying down his staff and making his way to one knee. He grunted, spying in the middle of the cove, nothing but grass, neatly trimmed and waiting. He looked around himself then, out of the corners of his eyes, and saw a dozen or so shapes moving through the half-dark. The naked form of John Higginson, the dark something with its long ears, horn and tail. The six airmen stood, their blank eyes staring, while the baby crawled slowly nearer on its hands and knees. Elsewhere amongst their number, he spied ancients in furs, brandishing clubs, the shape of what must have been Sir Christopher Fullwood, gut-shot yet smiling. Thomas Bateman, too, dressed in black mourning clothes. His daughter, Sarah, was by his side in a high-collared pinafore dress, looking to have tears in her eyes. The Boggarts formed a circle around the ring of Arbalow, then advanced as one, stepping down into the ditch and walking ever nearer, step by patient step. And so, Strine said, looking up at the fiend who had led him there, am I to suppose that after all this, you are not, in fact, Mr. Winsford? I never said I was, it said, kicking away Strine's staff. The spectre shuddered as it did so, bearing long, jagged teeth and losing its shape for a moment. It grimaced at its nearness to the obsidian, emitting a waft of dark smoke which smelled, ever so slightly, of brimstone. Strines nodded, then reached into his pocket and retrieved the case. The boggart watched him, curious and uncomprehending, as Strines unfastened the clip on its side and removed the tuning fork. It was made of quartz, heavy and old, and was tuned to G, the holiest note mankind has ever known. Well, Strine said, peering about as the shapes re-emerged over the lip of the dike. Whoever, or whatever you are, I bid you and your companions here adieu. Strines struck the pitchfork against the stone beneath his knee, and the note rang out, clear as fresh spring water. The shapes about the ring paused, halted their progress, hissing in fury. Again, Strines struck the quartz against the rock. He saw the boggarts stare at one another, all perplexed, their eerie shapes misting at the edges. The infant began to cry, and Strines chuckled grimly. Now, now, he said, no nearer and no need for tears. As the note echoed away, Strines stood tall before reaching down and grasping his staff. The being nearest him, the entity he'd once thought Mr. Winsford, tried to flee. But Strines raised the hazel rod and struck the tuning fork once again, this time on the wood itself. 
The forms of the ghouls about him began to loosen and buckle, frozen in place. So Strine strode quickly towards the single upright in the middle of Arbor Low. He clanged the pitchfork against it, then put the base of his staff against the stone and, with a slight bow to the macabre company, touched the fork's quartz tines to the sphere of obsidian in the staff's top. The sacred sound passed through the gem, down the wood, and into the upright stone. From there, it spread out through the earth of the ancient ring, its echo humming in each of the fallen stones. This sacred geometry, Strines thought, was as much as he understood of these places, and he thanked his lucky stars for it. Because, as if at the click of a finger, the boggarts of our below then vanished as one, like a blazing candelabra extinguished by a single mighty breath. Strines sighed, knowing this would not hold them for long. In a day or two, perhaps less, depending on their power, the spirits would reform. By then, however, he intended to be long gone, and sooner rather than later. Turning on his heels, he took the fastest route back to Middleton by Yulegrave. On foot, this took him across the common. It was dark, so he took great care not to fall or break an ankle on a rabbit warren. And though he was weary, with no pub open to offer food, a fire, or a stiff drink, he decided to simply head to the car. He would pick up a sandwich from the service station on his route home, letting the electric light bathe him in a pool of frenzied static. As he walked, he concluded he would have to write to Mr. Kendall and make his apologies, likewise to the real Mr. Winsford, presuming there ever had been a kindly historian who'd waited in the village square for much of the morning expecting his arrival. Nonetheless, Strines would have to send kind words and pass on recommendations that Kendall try another specialist in the field, Spencer and Associates perhaps, or Henrietta Swan, if she was still in business. With night truly fallen, Mr. Strines reached the sunbeam, unlocked it, and opened the driver's side door. He tossed his cap onto the old steamer trunk and climbed inside without changing his boots. After slotting his staff into the passenger side footwell, so it was within easy reach, he opened the glove box. From within, he extracted one of many sticks of sage, and this he lit using the car's cigarette lighter. Placing the sage into the cup holder behind the gear stick, he watched the smoke rise inside. It would have to do, though once home he intended to complete a grander cleansing ritual just in case any of them had got close enough to form a bond. It was unlikely, he knew, but possible. Though one thing was for sure, he would never again return to Arbor Low. Martin, that was so freaky. <laughs> Ghost baby, what are you trying to do to me? Yeah, I don't know. I felt like our stories had been a bit gentle lately. So what's scarier than a little ghost baby crawling on the grass to come and get you? Please don't. That is profoundly unsettling. 
<laughs> but I have to say, I loved Mr. Strines. Where did he come from? Was I, he real? I just made him up. Uh, Although Mag's bookshop is real, as are the legends of the nameless horror of Berkeley Square. <laughs> I just like the idea of this antiquarian bookseller from London who has a reputation for solving ghostly mysteries headed to our below and having a scary old time. And a scary old time he most certainly had. <laughs> so I'm guessing most of what you threaded through the story was true or based on reported hauntings? Yep, the Civil War battle and ghost of Sir Christopher Fullwood, the crashed World War II bomber, the baby, Thomas Bateman, John Higginson, all of these ghosts or boggarts are from around our below. And what about the thing with long ears, horns and a tail? Yeah, also reported. Oh, no. The sites of meaning around Middleton are absolutely there. You can do a circular walk around them and Haddon Hall, which I briefly touched on in the story, owned by the Dukes of Rutland, as mentioned in our Rutland episode, crazy building. It was abandoned for 200 years. Nobody lived there. They just locked the doors and left it, then returned around 1912, did limited renovations, and only since the 1960s has it been a permanent residence. That seems crazy, because I'm assuming it's a pretty grand house. It is indeed. Open to the public. Check the website. But why was a perfectly good country mansion abandoned for two centuries? Then only actually lived in a further 50 years after the doors were once again opened. Simple answer, Eleanor. Ghosts. They needed the ghosts cleared out to make it habitable. Should have called Mr. Strine. Well, indeed. I must say, the episode reminded me of when we took that ghost walk around Pluckley. Oh, yeah. Visiting all the sites of note. I assume a similar thing is very possible around Arbelow, although I think I will not be calling upon Mr. Winthrop, if that's his real name, to take me around there. I, I thought he was dodgy from the very start. Yeah, I, I think probably I read him as dodgy because I knew he was dodgy. <laughs> I like the naked ghost a lot. Did it's you? very funny. Not not the only example of a naked ghost that no. we've come across either. It's always unsettling to mm. encounter something that's naked because, of course, there's there's an implied vulnerability in a naked body. Yes. And yet a ghost is a terrifying thing. A nameless horror, in fact. Indeed. Nameless indeed. and pantless. <laughs> pantless horror. <laughs> Right, well, shall we talk correspondence? Yes, please. Okay, well, the first thing to say is, sadly, we didn't get any more reviews this week, so we have to reset the counter back to zero. But let's hope we get one next week. Well, Tony emailed to say that he, again, had written us a review, but the Apple podcast wasn't showing yeah. it, so technically it was one, but uh, that stinks a bit. Come on, Apple podcast, stop hiding our reviews. Yeah, more like crapple podcasts, am I right? <laughs> Don't say that, they might hear you. <laughs> anyway, clearly some of the reviews get through, so please, Dear listener, if you have five minutes and haven't already, we would really, really appreciate it if you could pop onto iTunes or Apple Podcasts and write us a review. We'll read it out on the next episode. And wherever you get your podcasts, please do drop some stars or give us a thumbs up to help other people find the podcast. Yes, please. And Martin finally figured out how to unlock that thing in Spotify where people can... <laughs> Look, I don't know how it is. Right? <laughs> that thing in Spotify where people can write responses to individual episodes. Yes. So if you want to do that, then please do so on Spotify and we will do our best to keep on top of them. For That's a new sure thing to us. It is. Now, in terms of emails and other messages, we've had some lovely ones, including from Erin, who attended a wassail event at Butzer Ancient Farm in Hampshire. Check out Erin Explores on Instagram. She made an awesome video all about it. We really want to go. It looks amazing. So yes, thanks so much, Erin. Likewise, thanks to Sarah, who messaged us with a delicious video about stargazy pie. And Mervyn, who's a druid, was in touch after our Magic and Medicine's Druids episode in December. Oh, yes. He said, 
Dear Eleanor and Martin, I don't know if you've received any comments from any druids as yet about your druid episode, but I would like to offer my perspective about it if I may. In general, I would have to say that yours is one of the best discussions I have heard. Martin asked that if any listeners had experience of the OBOD courses to get in touch. So here I am. It cannot simply be described as a correspondence course. You are presented with the material, then it's entirely up to the individual on the path that the material leads them. It's designed to help you discover the kind of druid you are, with no expectations that you should ever be like any other. At gatherings, we find that every one of us has learned something different. The diversity of knowledge, skills and talent is utterly joyful. Professor Ronald Hutton often joins us, and sometimes, if we're really lucky, he'll give a short talk. We love him too. I could go on and on. Leaving the controversy of Edward Williams to one side, I'd like to say, as modern druids, we're doing the best we can with the material and historical knowledge we have. We know we do not practice in the same way as ancient druids, and there would be many reasons not to. We are who we are, and we're okay with that. I hope that makes some kind of sense. Thank you both for the podcast. It brings me great joy. Such a lovely message. Mervyn, thank you. We obviously slightly edited what you said, yes. but Martin also appreciated the very kind things you had to say about his Oak and Holly story. I really did. And thanks again for taking the time to write to us. It means a huge amount. Thank you likewise to Dominic, Alison and Lily for your lovely emails. All very much appreciated. In terms of our likers, commenters and super sharers this week, special thank yous go to Dominic, Alicia, Charles, Sabrina and Pete on Facebook. Fluffy Stapler, Lissa, a Wolf and I, 21st Century Schizoid Dan and Anglian Miscellany on Instagram, and Samuel, Bevan Thomas, Weird Wiltshire, Fairytale Flash, and the Mothers of Weird Wednesday on Twitter. As ever, please join in the fun on social media via facebook.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast, Instagram at Three Ravens Podcast, and Twitter at Three Ravens Pod. Mm. And do join in on the Three Ravens Podcast Facebook group. Yeah. Lovely book recommendations on there, links to cool websites, all sorts of delightful stuff. And of course, if you'd like to support the podcast and access tons of extra content, as well as all of our episodes ad free, please join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast. So, Eleanor, where are we headed to next week? We will be wending our way to Wiltshire, a county we know quite a few people have been excited for us to get to. <laughs> it's the home of Stonehenge, Avebury Ring, Robin Hood's Bower, and many more ghosts than I can possibly hope to fit into a single episode. Excellent. And before that, we'll be back on Thursday with an all-new Magic and Medicines episode all about scrying. Very exciting. Well, until then, while our story's gone that way, we'll go this way. And remember... Don't whistle till you're out of the woods. Thanks and credit go to John Merrill's book, Derbyshire Folklore, Pete Castle's book, Derbyshire Folk Tales, and Simon Young's incredible The Boggart Source Book, texts and memories for the study of the British supernatural. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour, and our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production. Written and produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks and such lean men With a down, dairy, 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 down, down
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.